Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to have you with us this morning. We'll give it a minute to let the children get out of here. I want to begin by quoting a verse for you, well, part of the verse anyway. It's in John chapter 10, verse 10. I'm just going to read it. He says, Jesus is talking, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, the King James reads, I've come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Um, the full life or abundant life um, is what the verse is talking about. Now, let me ask you this question. If you were to evaluate your life right now, would you say that, yes, I'm living the abundant life? I'm living the full life that Jesus was talking about. Now, I do believe that it's God's will and what God desires is that for each one of us, when we come to the point in our lives where we put our faith in Jesus Christ and understand that he died on the cross for us, the Bible talks about that we are placed into the family of God. We are the God's children at that point. I believe that God has in store for us our best life. Now, grammatically, that may not be correct because it would be better to say a better life. But I'm not talking about just a better life. I'm talking about the best life. The best life that God has in store for each and every one of us. The life that is going to be uh, the most fulfilling and the, the uh most blessed life. And I think that's what he's talking about here in this verse. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest or abundantly. Now, he's not talking about heaven there because, I mean, you go to heaven and that's the abundant life, you know, for sure. But this is talking about I've come that they may have it now. I want them to enjoy it now. Your best life, the one that God had in mind when he created you and when he saved your soul, the one that God wants more than anything for you to live. Now, let me clarify something. When I talk about the abundant life or your best life, the one that God wants for each and every one of us, I'm not talking about a life that's without problems. Uh, the abundant life in Scripture is not a life that's without its issues. You're going to grieve. You're going to cry. You're going to hurt. You're going to have loss in your life. All of these things, it is not problem-free. That's not what the abundant life is. Jesus talked about this many times with his disciples. He said, in this life, you're going to have trouble. He said, um, but here's the thing. I've overcome this world, he said, and I can work in and through you in such a way that you can experience joy and peace and love and patience and contentment and all the other things that are yours by birthright. You see, they're yours because you're a believer in Christ. But these are things that he's talking about, I believe, when it talks about the abundant life. It is a life that is satisfying, a life that is fulfilled, a life that is blessed by God. Now, the Bible uses other words and terms um, to describe that life that God wants for us. And one of the terms that he uses is the fruitful life. Um, you know, Deb and I are, are planting flowers, as I'm sure some of you are, and you go around to the different uh, nurseries and you look for the flowers. And you, I just love walking through them. You know, we used to live up in Indiana, and, you know, they got like 70 inches of snow a year. It, you didn't think that uh, winter would ever leave. And so as soon as the flowers started hitting the greenhouses, we would just go walk through the greenhouses because it's like, all of a sudden, everything is blooming. Everything has come to life. Everything is fruitful. 
And it's just, it's just fascinating to walk through there. And so as we think about life, that this is what we're talking about. We're not just talking about life that's fulfilling and life that's blessed, but as Scripture portrays it, it's a life that is fruitful. That's how it is described, the fruitful life. Now, what goes into making your life fruitful? What does it look like? Well, basically, it's just talking about a healthy, spiritually healthy life. Um, Here are some words that come to mind when I think about the fruitful or the abundant life that God would have for us. Now, just think about this for a moment, okay? Words like productive comes to mind, that a fruitful, fulfilling life is a life that's productive spiritually, a life that is stable. You're not just flying all over the place and every whim of doctrine or belief or fear or whatever, but it's stable. There's some stability there. It's a life that is satisfying, a life that's filled with joy. Now, there will be times when that's not the case, but they don't last very long because we're talking about the Spirit of God creating within you things like love and joy and peace and so forth. A beautiful life, a contented life, a life that is a blessing to other people, and a life that is blessed by God. This, you know, these are ideas that come to mind, or, or words, if you will, that kind of help us to understand what, what the Lord is talking about when he's talking about you and I living an abundant, fruitful life. Now, here's what we're going to be talking about today, and that is this, that the way to achieve that in this life is through your obedience and your trust. In other words, what you're going to find over and over again in the, in the Scriptures is that God says to you and me, his children, that if you want this life, then there's a, a pathway to it. And that is, will you trust me with your life now? Now, this is not, I'm not talking about heaven and hell saved or lost issues here, okay? I'm talking to believers, as he is in this context we're going to be looking at today. And we're looking at this better life, this best life that, that God offers to us, and how do we enter into that? And it's going to be through your obedience to him. It's going to be through your walking with him every day. You're pursuing him. You're trusting him. When God says in his word that you're to live a certain way and, and not do certain things, that you believe that and that you act upon it. Part of the problem with us as Christians is that we don't act upon things because we don't really believe they're true. We'll listen to the news. We'll listen to culture. We'll read about things and people's opinions and ideas and philosophies. And we'll enter into that thinking, well, that's a great way to live life when God says, no, it's not. And so we miss out on so much of what God is talking about when he talks about this best life or this abundant life. Now, what does the opposite look like? If that's what the abundant life is and this is what the uh, fruitful life is, then let's describe for a moment the opposite of that, okay? Um, First of all, it would be unfruitful. Everything that we talked about as far as being fruitful in the believer's life, just the opposite. Words like dry come to mind. Words like unproductive, dead, rotten, stagnant, disappointing, misery, unhappiness, defeated. These are all terms that if you look long enough in the Bible, you're going to find 
some teaching or some person that exemplifies something like that in their life. And here's what you're going to see that is, is true every time. That the reason their lives are in that condition and in that state is because somehow they've gone astray into disobedience and unfaithfulness as it pertains to their relationship with the Lord. That God says, this is how I want you to live as my child, and we have chosen to live differently. And so many Christians, as I, I see and as I deal with people, so many Christians are living a life that's not their best life. It's not the life that God would have for them. It's not the, the, the life that he talks about in Scripture when he's talking about the abundant life or the fruitful life. And we have accepted, if you will, this status quo way of living. And we're struggling. We're suffering because of it. And sometimes we fall into that category of just being spiritually dried up and withered away and dead has nothing to do with your eternal salvation. That is a gift from God by faith in Jesus Christ. That is sealed. But I'm talking about how you and I live and the choices that we make and the results of those choices. And that's important, and we need to understand that. Now, what I want to do in the remaining time we have is this. I want to look at the Old Testament in one example where this is taught And then I'm going to come into the New Testament and look at another example. And we're going to see how they're very, very similar. But I want us to understand what they're teaching and what they're not teaching. And try to understand, okay, how does that apply to me? Because I need to understand this. I need to be aware of this as a believer. And I need to start taking it to heart and being serious about how I live and the choices that I make here in this life. Because God has a best life for me. Something far better than what I'm experiencing. But there's only one way to get there, and that is my walk with the Lord each and every day. So let me begin by taking you to a passage in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses. I'm going to begin with verse 7 here in a moment, but let me set the stage for what's going on. Isaiah was one of the prophets that prophesied to the nation of Israel during the time in which they were about to be taken captive and taken off into bondage. Now, eventually, not too long after this prophecy, they are, or may have already, by the time this this is uh, written, are already in bondage. Babylon sweeps in and takes them into captivity. And for 70 years, they live in sheer agony in the land of Babylon. And it is a horrible experience for so many of them. But this is what happens to them as a result of their disobedience. What I want you to see is the way in which this is portrayed to us and what is stated. Because you need to understand something. And Paul brought this out in, in one of the, uh, of the epistles, and I'm not sure, it might have been Corinthians, where he said the things that happened to Israel in the Old Testament happened to them so that they would become examples to us, the church, the believer, and so that we would understand and not make the same mistakes. So you need to understand something about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is given for you to, to read and to study, to understand, and to learn from, so that we don't make the same mistakes again. So let me begin, if you will, Isaiah chapter 5, but I want to begin with verse 7, the end of it, because I want to identify who we're talking about. In verse 7, this is what the prophet Isaiah said. He says, the vineyard, and he's going to talk about the vineyard here in a minute. He's telling you who this is. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. 
And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So in other words, what we're going to be looking at now, he's talking about a vineyard, and the vineyard is Israel. It's important that you understand that up front. So that's the reason I started with verse 7. Israel is under the judgment of God. It may not have come to fruition yet, but they are under the judgment of God because of their disobedience. And this is a... (laughs) This is a problem throughout the Old Testament. All you've got to do is study the Old Testament and you see that Israel, you know, they'll have a revival in Israel and everybody's committed to the Lord and walking with the Lord. And 10, 20 years later, you find them into idolatry. And God takes them into bondage or suffering in some form or fashion. And then they'll change. It's like a cycle all through the Old Testament. A lot like our lives. You know, a lot lot like you. In me, because there are times in our lives where we're really close to the Lord and we're walking with God and everything's great. And then there are other times where we've gotten off into something. We've made some foolish, ungodly decisions and we've gone down a path we shouldn't have gone down in our lives or in shambles. And we kind of look around at our life and we think, how in the world did we ever get here? How did it ever happen? And what I'm going to show you today is how you got there and I'm going to show you the way out. But we're going to begin with this text in the Old Testament. It says in verse 1 of this passage in Isaiah 5, Isaiah is saying this, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He's talking about Israel. He's already identified that. God took Israel and planted Israel right where they are and said, I'm going to bless you told Abraham and Isaac and Jacob this. He said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And I'm going to put a hedge of protection around you and protect you and love you. And all of the world will see the love that I pour out on you and they will glorify me because of how I treat you and they will want in on this, so to speak. And so that's what he did. And so he planted his vineyard on a fertile hillside. Now watch what he does in verse 2, how it's portrayed. He dug it up and cleared, cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. I cleared this vineyard, he says, this nation of Israel, a place for them in fertile ground. I cut out a wine press, set a watchtower over there to keep the thieves out. He said, I blessed this nation, and all I asked for, all I wanted to see was good fruit. I wanted to see something in their lives that I could bless. But he said, all that I saw was the bad fruit that it yielded. Sinful choice after sinful choice after sinful choice. In verse 3, he says, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard then I have done for it. When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? He says, oh, what more could I have done than to place them where I have and bless them the way that I have, expecting something good out of their lives only to get the bad? Now, guys, we're going to see in a moment a passage that that parallels this in the New Testament. But you need to understand something. This could just as easily be you and me. That God is talking about us. 
I have put you in such a privileged position and given you so many opportunities and put a hedge around you and protected you and kept you safe. And all I wanted was to see righteous lives and lives that walked with me and people that loved me, but I didn't. Now, verse 5 tells you what he's going to do. And this is ultimately what he did with the nation of Israel. But in verse 5 it says, Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. In verse 6, I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Oh, Did he do it? Yeah, he did it. Nebuchadnezzar swept in and destroyed that nation. The Bible tells us that uh, they swept in and destroyed the temple of God that Solomon had built. They destroyed the land. They They tore the temple down. They burned the stones just to get the gold out of the stones where the gold had been overlaid, had overlaid the stones. People died. Oh, my gosh. Daniel, other men like Daniel, hauled off to Babylon. Horrible experience. In the description of this, it's not talking about, I've cast you aside, I don't want anything to do with you, because we know from Scripture that God still watches over Israel and one day will restore Israel, but right now they're under the chastening of God. I'll make it a wasteland. I'll take away its hedge, its wall. I won't let, I'll take away its protection. Babylon will sweep in and trample it and destroy it. That's graphic, and that's horrible. But after all of the centuries that God watched over Israel and put up with their disobedience, God finally said, that's enough. And you know this, that the reason God did what he did, that the straw that broke the camel's back as far as Israel was concerned was idolatry. He put up with a whole lot of other things with Israel, but idolatry was the one thing that he would not put up with. And do you know that when after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, when they came back, that till this day, idolatry has never been a problem in Israel? They learned the lesson. They had other problems, believe me, but they learned that lesson. So God chastened them. God dealt with them. Now, let me jump into the New Testament, look at this text, and we're going to draw some conclusions, okay? I want to take you to John 15. It's a familiar passage, and the reason I'm taking you there is because of the imagery. In the Old Testament, he planted the vineyard of, of the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, he's got a vine, the church, and the branches. Or really, he's the vine, they're the branches. But let me read this to you. He says in verse 5 of John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So here's the imagery now. The story that he's going to tell, the, the, the teaching that he's going to give the disciples is this. I'm the vine. So things have changed a little bit since the Old Testament. I'm the vine now, and I'm the one that's going to help you internally through my spirit. And you're the branches. And your job is this, that as I bless you and take care of you and pour out all of these things that I want to do for you, as you are given opportunity to live your best life, 
as you do, uh, you're just supposed to hold up the fruit. You're supposed to be the example. And I'm going to bless you richly. Apart from me, you can't do anything. You can't do this. You and I as believers need to understand this, that God empowers us to live this way through his spirit. I can't, I can't do this and neither can you. And this is what he's teaching them. Now this thing about remaining in me, I am the vine, you are the branches, if you remain in me. Now is he talking about them walking away and losing their salvation? Some people have taught it this way. But no, it's not the case. That's not, we don't believe that. But the remaining in me is simply this, that you're walking with me, you're pursuing me, you're obeying me. If we just plugged in this term, obeying me, watch how it changes. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you obey me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So this whole idea of remaining in him is just the fellowship of walking with him day by day in obedience and trusting him and experiencing your best life. That's what it is. Now watch, because just like in the Old Testament, in the vineyard, God tore down the wall and God brought in Nebuchadnezzar and chastened his people. He does the same thing in in the church, in the believer's lives. Now watch this verse, verse 6. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. I don't know, Pastor, that sounds an awful lot like somebody being cast into hell to me. But no, it's not. You need to understand something. There is the imagery of the story, the example, the illustration, to make the point that he's trying to make. Now, here's the point, here's the illustration. It was common knowledge in, the, in, in their, their culture. You go through the vineyards, you go through the orchards, you go through the gardens, you go through everything, and you start cutting and pruning and straightening things up. And they would prune away the dead wood from the vines, the grapevines, and they would throw it out into the aisle. And they'd go down through the next row, prune out everything, and throw it out into the aisle. And then somebody would come along, gather up all the dead wood, take it, and use it for kindling and burn it because that's all it was good for. He said, now watch, he said, if you do not remain in me, in other words, if you don't obey me, you are like a branch. And the only thing getting burned here are branches, not people. He said, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers and is picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. He said, that's what your life is like. Now, again, the picture, see, the picture that he's painting for these people They knew full well what it was like to go pile up the branches that had withered away and were unproductive, and and they were burned up. And he's saying, that's your life if you don't obey me. How does that happen? How does that happen? Because God chastens. God disciplines. You know, we can call it punishment, and we, we, that's a confusing term because we equate punishment with hell. But let me tell you, when God disciplines, when God chastens, it's, it's like punishment, and it hurts. And he says, your life 
the best life that I have for you, you've missed out on. You're not living like that. He said, because you're not remaining in me, you're not walking with me, you're not obeying me. And you're going to be just like that branch that you all know what I'm talking about, that withered piece of worthless stuff laying on the ground that we only can take and burn for kindling. He said, you know what that's like. He said, that's what your life looks like. And you know what? That doesn't surprise you because you know what that feels like. You've been there. I think at some point in time, to some degree, for some length of time, we've all been there. We've made ungodly choices. We've walked away from the vine. Please understand, God never left. We did. And it's like I cut off the source of life, the source of power in my life. I've cut it off and I've chosen to live ungodly. And that's what I feel like. Dry, withered, lifeless, and fruitless. And God says that's what your life is going to be like. Because when you disobey me, you're just like the vineyard in the Old Testament. You're just like the branch in the New Testament. Your life is a sham. It's a shamble. Because I'm not going to let you experience my blessing. And guys, we've got to learn this point here, this this teaching. That God expects his people to live godly lives. When we do, we experience the best life God has for us. We do. We experience it. The blessing and the richness and the fullness and the contentment and the peace and the love and the joy. When when the whole world around us is crumbling down and seemingly going to hell in a handbasket, you and I walk through life with joy in our hearts because we're walking with Him. But when we choose to do it our way, we're basically breaking ourselves off from the vine and saying, I'm going to do it my way. So we make immoral choices, ungodly choices. And then we, then we blame everybody else for it, don't we? We blame the church, blame our parents, blame the pastor, blame our spouse. And you need to understand who's to blame here, okay? It's you. It's me. It's anybody that claims to be a believer and has walked away from the Lord for, to, for whatever reason. Why would you expect anything other than the chastening hand of God? And this is why Jesus is teaching the disciples. Guys, you can't do anything without me. And let me tell you something. When you walk away, you're going to dry up, wither away, and be blown away because that's what life is going to be for you outside of fellowship with me. But now watch in verse 7. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, now notice what he's saying here, okay? If you remain in me, in other words, if you walk with me, if you trust me, and if you obey me, and my words remain in you, that's the obedience part. You're mindful of what God has said. It's part of your life. It matters. He said, if you do that, he said, here's part of the blessing. Here's part of the best life you can have. You come to me and you ask, and I'll give. You come to me and I will bless you. That's what I do for my vineyard. That's what I do for my vine when they are blossoming and blooming. 
that, my friend, that life looks totally different. It feels different. This is what makes the difference in, in, among believers. You look at people who look like they just died already. All they need to do is be buried. And yet they're Christians. You think, why? Well, there it is. They've walked away. They've cut off the power source. They're living their own life their way. They're not living God's best. And they are experiencing the consequences. The judgment of God. Then you look at other people. Man, all you see is the fruit of the Spirit. My goodness, the, they, they, a loved one dies and they grieve, but yet they're still filled with joy and expectation. Life is just different. The way they approach it is different. That's the difference. Let me move on very quickly. Verse 8. He said, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Don't miss this, okay? What is it that God wants out of this? Why does God want you, now that he saved you, why does it matter to him that you live a godly life? Because your life is an example to the rest of the world as to what God can do, to God's glory. Israel was supposed to have done that, the vineyard of God, but they didn't, and they suffered the consequences. You and I are the branches on the vine that are supposed to hold up the fruit, supposed to display the, the love and the joy of God in our lives, but who wants, who wants what we have to offer when all they've got to do is look into your face and into your life? And see, nothing there but dryness and deadness. Why? He says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Now what is he talking about? Is he talking about God not loving you? He's not talking about what God feels for you. Please understand this. God felt love for you, therefore he committed himself to save you. But what this is talking about is this that I have remained, Jesus talking, I've remained in my Father's love. He has poured out His love on me. He said, that's what I want for you, to remain in my love so that I can pour out my blessing and my love on you. Your best life. That's what God wants to give you. I want to give that to you. I don't want to judge you or chasten you. In verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. He's talking about showing it, what God does for you, the blessing of God. He says in verse 11, I've told you this so that, now watch, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Why would you teach us something like this, Lord? Why would you teach me that as the believer that I face I face a life like this if I if I don't serve you, if I don't walk with you, if I don't obey you, why do you teach me such harsh teaching? He said, Because I want you to experience your best life. I want you to understand that I want you to experience my joy and I want your joy to be complete your best life. Gosh, you know, we have this idea, this image of God, as a believer we do, that God is an ogre and that God just wants to smash us and keep good things from us and just hold us at arm's length 
That's the image that we get because of the way we've been raised or what we've always been taught or heard in churches. And nothing could be further from the truth. God chastens us because of our disobedience. Why? Why? It tells you. Why? Because I want you to experience my joy. I want you to experience your best life. Christian, why are you living like a withered up old branch? When God says to you and me, I want you to be like a plant that just is exploding. I want you to exhibit in your life all of the good things that I have for you and experience those things. But you need to understand, it comes with a bit of a price. Because you're going to have to make some changes. The things that you've chased after all your life that you thought were going to make you happy and bring you joy and give you your best life, they've let you down, haven't they? But he keeps saying to you and me, I won't. I want you to experience my joy. And I want your joy to be complete. So then the question as we bring this to a close is this. Are you living your best life? And if not... Why not? What is it? It may be it may be something big in your life. Some failure, moral failure or infidelity or some sinful act like that in your life that's preventing you from experiencing your best life. It may just be something smaller. And when I say smaller, according to our judgment, not as bad. Maybe you're just selfish. Maybe you're just greedy. Maybe you're prideful. Maybe you are not doing the things that God would have you to do, like spending time in prayer and coming to church and giving your money and helping people and reaching out to people. And maybe you're just not doing those things. I don't know. But when the Spirit of God leads you and guides you in your everyday life and you choose to walk away and disregard that, then you need to understand that what lies over here is deadness and dryness. And what lies over here with walking with that and obeying that and giving in to that and yielding to that is your best life, the abundant life that God says is yours. By birthright, it's yours. Don't let that pass through your fingers. Don't live like an unbeliever. God's not going to let you, first of all. And you're going to miss out on so much. There's the best life available to each and every one of us, regardless of what you think of yourself or regardless of what you think of God. The Bible says it is there and is ours for the taking. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to close this up a little bit differently. I want us to individually just quiet our minds and spend a little bit of time just reflecting over our lives. In other words, I want you to think through and let the Spirit of God convict you to point out, you know what, this is an area that needs to change. This is an area where you need to repent, where you need to make a change. And I don't know what that is, but you do. 
Some will be very obvious to you and you'll know it immediately because you already know. Others, maybe God's going to have to open up your heart and mind to understand it. But I want to spend the next few minutes just quietly while Kathy plays softly in the background. I just want you to do some business with God here, okay? Because this is important. The Bible says to the believer that whosoever confesses their sins, God is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, I tell you that because this is God's pathway back into fellowship. That when I understand my shortcomings and my failures and my sins and all of these things that are in my life, then I need to fess up. See, God's not interested. God doesn't desire to hurt you. He doesn't desire to to chasten you. God wants repentance. God wants you to confess. God wants you to say, yes, Lord, that is me, and I'm so guilty, and I'm so sorry, because I've done that. That's the beginning. We confess it, and then we go out and change it. That's how you get back. You come back into fellowship. You come back into the light. You come back into a a right relationship with God. And guys, this is how you avoid the chastening hand of God. But it's up to you. So I'm going to ask you just to sit quietly as Kathy plays. And I'll close this up here in a few minutes with a prayer, and then we'll be done. But I want you to really take this to heart and be serious about this. in your presence 
Father, we confess our sin to you this morning. Father, as you pointed out to us individually through your spirit, Lord, I pray that we would be honest with you. Acknowledge where we have failed you. And Father, help us to change. Lord, we want to live our best life for you. We want to experience you in ways that we've never imagined possible. Father, we don't want to be dry and spiritually dead and experiencing all of the things that are the opposite of the fruitful life. Father, we pray that you would take us into this abundant life in a fresh new way. And Father, we give you all the honor and the glory and the praise for it because it is all of you. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.